The year is 1400. You are a teenage girl in your prime, popular in your Aztec village, but you find yourself being sacrificed to the gods. Well, fuck. You're this week's virgin of choice, it seems. Is now a good time to admit that you let the village hottie stick the tip in? Does it count if you did anal or oral? Are you really getting sacrificed at all, or is this just a movie and a Hollywood trope of inaccurate history? When it comes to V-cards, there's much more than meets the eye. Today, we pop this podcast cherry and talk about losing it for the first time in the history of deflowering. We take a quick look at some famous virgins, go over some of the craziest laws and tests cultures have come up with, and find out just how much someone might pay to break or not break a girl's hymen. So let's dive right in with more than just the tip this time. Let's get naked and talk about virginity. Hello everyone and happy hump day. Welcome to Get Naked with Alex. This is the first real episode. Of course it had to be about virginity. I was actually really worried this topic would be too political, religious, modern, or too boring. Luckily I was entirely wrong. Turns out I just didn't know as much as I thought I did. And that's the point of this podcast, right? To learn new things. Before we jump in, I want to drop a disclaimer for anyone who missed it in the intro episode. This is an extremely adult podcast. There will be cussing, talks of penises, vaginas, and sex. It's not a very clean podcast, so feel free to turn this off if that doesn't sound at least a little entertaining to you. I don't really plan on responding to emails about how this isn't an appropriate topic if you made the choice to sit and listen through it. For everyone that is sticking around, are you ready to fill your ear holes with some sexy new knowledge? Let's get right to it. I think the best start here would be to define virginity, so we're all on the same page as much as we can be. Virginity is defined as the state of never having sexual intercourse. Seems simple enough, but we should probably figure out what sexual intercourse is. A quick Google search of that term, sexual intercourse, and you can find that most sites try to break things down into subcategories for intercourse. Wikipedia says it's principally the insertion and thrusting of the penis, usually, when erect, into the vagina, but then goes on to clarify that there are other forms of penetrative sexual intercourse, including including (laughs) fingering, anal sex, oral sex, and the use of a dildo or other inanimate object. So it's a little harder to define than you might assume. Merriam-Webster defines sexual intercourse as heterosexual act or other intercourse that does not involve a penis and a vagina, for example, anal and oral. So it still leaves things a little vague, but I guess you can kind of decide for yourselves what you consider intercourse. For the sake of this episode, most of what we're going to be referring to is penis to vagina, since that's what most of history implies when virginity comes up. The earliest mention of virginity in a legal sense comes about in an ancient tablet called the Code of Ur-Nimmu. This code was in use around 2100 to 2050 BC in Mesopotamia and is the oldest code of laws that we have physically found, even older than the popular Code of Hammurabi, which is famous famous for its eye for an eye law. There are 32 rules in the Code of Ernamu covering a range of things from murder to flooding someone else's fields. For example, number one, if a man commits murder, that man shall be killed. And number 13, if a man is accused of sorcery, he must undergo ordeal by water. If he is proven innocent, his accuser must pay three shekels. A trial by water, by the way, is when a person is submerged in a stream and if they survived, they were innocent. I always thought these trials by ordeal were really interesting because they never made any logical sense. Walking over hot coals without burning your feet or sticking your hand in boiling water to retrieve a stone at the bottom of the pot. And your innocence was judged by how wounded you were at the end or if you survived at all. 
Now, I immediately assumed that if you walk away from such a thing without a single inner injury, you're obviously a fucking witch, right? You obviously have something protecting you from boiling water. It must be a spell or a hex or the devil or some shit. But as it turns out, most of the time, people assumed that God or gods were keeping you safe because you were innocent. So it wasn't you keeping you safe. It was some kind of divine intervention. I really enjoy reading about how a lot of laws and punishments and trials in history all revolved pretty heavily around luck or sometimes skill. It's interesting. Anyway, the laws we really care about here are numbers six and eight. Number six, if a man violates the right of another and deflowers the virgin wife of a young man, they shall kill that male. And number eight, if a man proceeded by force and deflowered the virgin female slave of another man, that man must pay five shekels of silver. This is, at least, the first depiction of a culture giving virginity a specific value. It is just female virginity, but slaves are five shekels and wives are worth your life. If, according to Ernemu's code number seven, a wife commits adultery with another man, that man, that woman shall be put to death, but the man should go free. In almost every large culture, it seems to be a recurring theme. Women are pretty much killed if they sleep with someone who isn't their husband. This has a lot to do with something called paternity certainty and the fact that women have been labeled as a type of property pretty much since humans figured out agriculture. Paternity certainty is, of course, assuring that you and only you got your wife pregnant and that you are raising your own actual offspring. There's been a lot of debate on whether this was the mindset of humans before agriculture. There's a book called Sex at Dawn that talks about why people might cheat, and it kind of challenges the idea that humans are instinctually monogamous. I'll touch on this book more when we do a episode on monogamy, but it's worth at least mentioning here. It does seem like most cultures put more weight into extramarital affairs than premarital affairs, but that's not to say virginity hasn't been the focus of some intense scrutiny in the past. Throughout history, many cultures have tried to come up with tests to prove or disprove virginity. In early Greek societies, it was believed that a virgin could be told apart from their sexually active counterparts only by checking out their nipples. Virgins were supposed to have perky pink nipples that pointed upwards, while women who were not virgins had dark, large nipples that pointed down. I seriously don't understand this one, as it is extremely easy to test. I've known plenty of ladies who have very pink, very perky nipples and who have had plenty of sex. Just ask the husbands to do their thing and watch their wives' breasts for the next couple hours. Keep an eye for the next couple days. Pregnancy and age can change the appearance of nipples, but sexual intercourse alone certainly does not. Another common theory floating around Europe hundreds of years ago was that virgins had the power to hold water in their hands without any leaking out. In fact, Queen Elizabeth I, who is also known in history as the Virgin Queen, can be found in several paintings done at the time holding a sieve as a sign of her virginity. It's said that she could hold the sieve, which would then be filled with water, and the water would not leak from it at all. She was actually kind of an interesting woman, in a time when people were sleeping with royal relatives just to keep the bloodlines pure. She chose to never have children, and instead, in a way a nun might marry God and therefore stay chaste, she married her country, giving herself entirely to it. In a similar context, it was assumed that virgins could hold their bladders better than their sexually active counterparts, and that when they did pee, their urine would be pure and clear, where sexually active women had darker urine. We all know now that none of this has anything to do with virginity, thanks to science. When society moved on from water holding and nipple inspection, the hymen became the main focus of virginity testing. To this day, men and women all over the world believe that a broken hymen is still valid proof of sexual intercourse. Let's talk about the hymen for a second. Hymens are a sort of webbing of skin around the opening of a vagina. Contrary to popular belief, it does not create a seal that needs to be broken. There's still an opening to the vagina. Humans are not the only species to have hymens either. Moose, narwhal, lemur, and elephant females, along with a few more, also come equipped with a hymen. We don't really know what the actual scientific purpose of a hymen even is. 
It's been proposed that it's meant to keep the vagina safe when we are small and developing, keeping dirt and debris from getting inside, but it's hard to know if that was really its intended purpose. So in theory, a woman has sex for the first time, as in a penis enters her vagina, and that webbing tears. Growing up, it's said to girls over and over again that this is going to be painful and there will be blood. The first time I had sex, this was not really the case. It wasn't painful so much as uncomfortable and awkward, and if there wasn't any blood, it was minimal. I was almost disappointed at how boring it was, considering how often I was told that it was going to be this magical, painful, bloody, crazy event. And it was none of these things. It wasn't special at all. And I don't regret it. Sex is a learning process, and that was one of many first steps. Okay, back to the hymen. It turns out some women aren't even born with a hymen at all. And hymens can break during all sorts of activities. And I say break, stretch, whatever. Like bike riding, horseback riding, doing the splits. There's also this issue that there are times when a woman can have sex for the first time or many times and her hymen won't move at all. Given enough care and lube or just specific genetics, you could go your whole life having plenty of sex and still have your hymen intact and undamaged. Still, it's used as a test for virginity even in recent times. For women in medieval history, sometimes it didn't even matter if you had sex or had not had sex when you were tested. Midwives were given the duties of testing for virginity and this power was definitely abused. There were accounts of midwives lying one way or another about what they found. If a midwife thought it might benefit her in one way or another to say that the hymen was broken when in fact it was not, she would take that opportunity and throw the girl being examined under the bus. And the opposite was also true. Midwives would lie to help many women whose hymens might be damaged or missing for various reasons. So not only was the testing physically inaccurate, but it was also easily manipulated by the person performing the test. Bloody sheets were used in multiple accounts as proof of a girl of a girl being a virgin until the night of the wedding and the consummation as well. There were famous stories of families keeping these sheets for many years after to, ensue, to ensure they always had proof should the question ever come up. But as I said, sometimes there isn't blood. So what happens then? Well, a lot of times the woman would be called a liar and uh, she would get murdered in a lot of cultures. Nowadays, a woman can get her hymen surgically restored and depending on the work, it can be virtually undetectable. And this is actually a rising practice. There's a lot of people getting their hymens restored. There is no evidence yet to suggest that getting your hymen surgically restored re-gifts you with any of the magical powers that virgins of history have had. Virginity has been linked to some pretty mystical shit in the past. For instance, in Roman culture, it was believed that virgins had the power to tame unicorns. To catch a unicorn, you had to use the virgin as bait and wait for the unicorn's phallic wild energy to be calmed by a virgin's innocent demeanor. I had no idea about the unicorns being so heavily involved with virgins, and it makes me laugh because the term unicorn is constantly used to describe a girl who's willing to be the third wheel in a threesome nowadays. Unicorns have been used as an artistic symbol of virginity throughout history. Ladies who were looking to marry would have portraits of themselves painted with unicorns to sort of show off their status as a virgin. But what happens if you want to get a portrait of yourself done, but you hate horses? Have no fear. There are plenty of other items you could use to symbolize your purity. Pearls, for instance, have been used in many paintings of the Virgin Mary as a symbol of her virginity. They have been widely used in art with younger girls and people of faith to symbolize clean, round, white, pure innocence. Another interesting counterpart to virginity is the emerald. Though the green gem itself is not widely used as a symbol of virginity, it has been said to protect, protect virginity and innocence. Emeralds were tarnished or even shattered if someone lost their virginity or if their innocence was forcibly taken from them. Couples who engage in sex for the first time will no longer see emeralds with the same brilliance. Some flowers have been used to symbolize virginity as well, but each culture has their own idea of what flower to use here. Flowers in general have been widely used as an image for the vagina in general. And though lilies seem to be the first flower that comes up when looking for the right one, it seems that that's only really used in Christian cultures. So I guess it depends on how you Google. 
Anything white usually makes for a good symbol if you're in a pinch. Back to virginal superpowers. In a Norse epic poem written around the 13th century, Nibblungenlide, definitely butchering that one, one of the characters, Queen Brunhild, has powers of super strength that are tied directly to her virginity. It doesn't seem to be a common theme in Norse mythology, but it's an interesting one to see a depiction of a virgin who is given a less than delicate trait. She is a queen, but it's still a pretty jarring difference. In some versions of the tale of the Holy Grail, Sir Lancelot is stronger than the other knights of the round table because he is a virgin. He loses his virginity and finds that he can no longer get to the Holy Grail, but his son, who is a virgin, can. And who can forget the biggest power of all? The power to give birth to the Son of God. You can't have an episode about virginity and not bring up the Virgin Mary. Though there isn't much out there on her early life, after the birth of Jesus, she becomes quite powerful. She's depicted as a sort of battle maiden that never ages and returns to faithful followers every now and again, thousands of years after her death, supposedly. Those are some badass superpowers. You could say that her power isn't directly derived from her virginity, but she wouldn't be who she was if she wasn't a virgin. And she stayed a virgin, according to history. According to some stories, so did her husband Joseph. It actually states in some religious texts that Joseph debated quietly divorcing Mary when he found out that she was pregnant because they hadn't had sex yet, but an angel came to him and told him what the deal was and to stay with her, so he did. Jesus wasn't the only miraculous birth in ancient history, though he might be the most widely known in Western and European cultures. Alexander the Great was said to be born of a virgin and used this to become a recognized king in Egypt. Romulus and Remus, the legendary founders of the great city of Rome, were miraculously conceived by a Vestal Virgin named Rhea Silvia. A Vestal Virgin, by the way, is basically a priestess of the goddess Vesta, sworn to virginity and chastity, and whose job was it to keep a flame burning constantly at the altar of Vesta. There are many gods, goddesses, and historically powerful people that claim to be born of virgin mothers. Virgin births don't just exist, skeptically, in human history either. Many animals and insects procreate using a process called parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis is the act of creating your own offspring without needing both male and female DNA, basically a form of asexual reproduction. Plants and insects are most often found with the ability to produce asexually, but some lizards, sharks, and even birds have been observed in the wild and in captivity, producing babies this way. The Komodo dragon female, for instance, can fertilize her own eggs in the absence of males. In an interesting twist, the only eggs that will hatch from such a process will produce male Komodo dragons. A female Komodo dragon can basically make its own breeding group. Obviously, this process isn't exclusive to virgin animals and insects, and most of the insects are really just cloning themselves and aren't actually equipped to sexually reproduce normally, but that's still worth noting. And if virgins weren't giving birth to powerful deities, they were at least being sacrificed to powerful deities, right? Actually, it turns out, Virgin sacrifices may not have been a thing at all. Human sacrifice in general was only practiced at some point by very few cultures, and virgins were never really specifically targeted. Most of the historical accounts of virgin sacrifice actually seems to amount to one group of people talking shit about another group of people, creating lies to make the other group seem more barbaric and heinous than when in fact it was just some weird form of propaganda in some ways. Even human sacrifice itself is mostly written about from third-party point of views, such as Spanish explorers finding mass graves or speaking to ancient native tribes, so they very well could have embellished or just plain got it wrong. That's not to say it never happened, but the evidence to suggest that virgins specifically were ever sacrificed is extremely poor. Another thing about the Aztecs that's been said, but again through third parties, is that they believed that avocados had such a strong sexual energy that virgins were not allowed outside of their homes during avocado harvest times, 
and were forbidden from interacting with the fruit entirely, which is incredibly disappointing because avocados are amazing. Throughout history, a lot of pressure has been put into holding out until marriage, and there's been an immense amount of emphasis put into how negative and unclean it is to have any kind of sexual intercourse with anyone other than your husband. But is there a downside not getting down and dirty, aside from, you know, well, the obvious? Hypochromic anemia, or green sickness, is a condition that occurs when your red blood cells are paler than they normally should be. This causes the skin to look greenish and can be accompanied by headaches, strange eating habits, fatigue, shortness of breath, indigestion, and it can cause the absence of a menstrual cycle in females. In Germany in 1554, a physician named Johannes Lang gave this condition a different name, the disease of virgins. He claimed that this sickness was more commonly found in virgin girls. The prescribed cure for such an illness was to fuck. Seriously, have sex. And if you have a baby, then it will cure you. This type of anemia is mostly caused by iron deficiency, but somehow having a child cured you. I couldn't find anything on the cure for men, but I assume it wasn't give birth. Another condition associated with virgins is something called lovesickness. If you've ever read or seen Hamlet, uh, Shakespeare's famous to be or not to be tragedy, you'll recognize the name Ophelia. Ophelia is Hamlet's love interest early on, but due to unfortunate events, they never marry. A 400-year-old spoiler here, Hamlet denies Ophelia, and she ends up going a little crazy and dies. And there's quite a few theories about her later insanity, including the recent death of her father. However, one interesting theory states that she lost her mind due to lovesickness. Overall, lovesickness doesn't just affect virgins, but this particular case is associated specifically with females' body wanting to be impregnated and being denied said impregnation. Therefore, her body and mind begin to deteriorate. It's not specified that Ophelia kills herself, but it seems foreshadowed by her insanity just before she dies by falling into a river and drowning. Thirsty womb syndrome and wandering womb are another example of the same concept. A woman is not made a wife and therefore is not having sex, which means she is not having children and her body is turning against her. These sicknesses have obviously been proven to have nothing to do with the lack of childbearing and wombs never wander around the body. Thanks again, science. There was a time in semi-recent history that virginity was looked down on as, as well. In some cultures, those that tended to be a little more warlike and sometimes a little more pagan, it was important to have a constant flow of warriors, so having babies ASAP was ideal. In other places, after a certain age, around the late teens, women who remained virgins were seen as trying to avoid marriage and motherhood altogether, and people shamed these women. In ancient Chinese laws, you can find a time, a small time, when it was required by all women to prostitute themselves out before marriage to gain experience, which is drastically different than most of history. Some notable figures who supposedly never did the deed include Andy Warhol, Isaac Newton, Nikola Tesla, Lewis Carroll, and a little more obviously, Joan of Arc and Mother Teresa. In searching for well-known virgins, I found a few people that were sometimes listed that just seemed a little strange. For instance, Adolf Hitler. It was rumored that he'd never had sex with his wife. However, it's been proven that he contracted syphilis at some point. And it's extremely unlikely for a virgin to contract syphilis. So I feel like this is pretty sketchy. And I think it's funny that he's been listed so often. Another person, author Jane Austen, was also mentioned in a list as having died a virgin, but only because she didn't get married. I don't know how fair it is to assume that just because she didn't settle down, she definitely didn't have sex. Now, I know what you're all thinking. Most of this info in this episode has been pretty heavy leaning towards women. There are not enough males in this episode. Well, there's a really good reason for that. There is almost nothing in history about male virgins. The few times it is referenced, it's in tandem with religion, mostly. Another good reason for the lack of content is, as it turns out, there's no physical way to tell if a man has had sex. There never has been. And I know that 
I mentioned hymens are unreliable, but men get nothing. Again, humans have placed much more value in female virginity over male virginity anyway, so it just never got attention. At the beginning of the episode, we took a look at the first recorded time in history that value was placed on virginity, and I got curious how this has evolved over time. It's really hard to make a timeline and graph to map out the price, but very recently, people have been spending some serious money on V-card collecting, supposedly. It's understandably hard to find confirmed sales that people actually went through with, but the prices vary wildly. You can find a few women who sold their virginities for somewhere between a couple thousand and a couple hundred thousand dollars, but there are some that were being auctioned off in the millions. Again, these are hard to confirm. There was a lesbian lady who reportedly went through with it and stated after that she regretted the encounter. That seems believable. She was paid, supposedly, 8,400 pounds, equal to about 10,625 in US dollars. What do you think the average age people lose their virginity is? Globally, for the last couple generations, the average age is somewhere between 17 and a half to 18 years old. With Generation Z, those born after 2000, the average age they're losing it dropped to 16.2 years. And that's an overall average. For each country, it has its own statistics, usually heavily affected by the culture of the area. For instance, India seems to have the highest average on its own, with a population popping their cherries around 19.8 years old. Iceland has an average of 15 and a half. Here in the U.S., we average at about 16.9. And Cindy, your anal-loving neighbor, lost hers at 20, if you remember from last year's community yard sale when she let that slip. And everyone was so, so surprised it wasn't sooner. Look at all you harlots losing it before your adventurous, deviant little neighbor, Cindy. All right, we're going to back up again and go back to the history books. I'm going to read a small portion of a book no one has ever heard of before called the Kama Sutra. I used to think it was a book just full of pictures of crazy sex positions, but it's actually just a step-by-step -step guide to life in general. I plan on devoting an entire episode to this book, so we won't go too deep into it. We're going to stick with a chapter named How to Relax the Girl. In this chapter, it's discussed how the couple needs to wait three days before they can consummate their marriage. It's a whole ritual the man must go through to woo his lady before they can really get down to business, and it's supposed to take up to three days. It reads like this. A woman is like a flower. She must be treated gentle until she feels secure. If at any time an approach is too brutal, the woman develops a hostile attitude to the sexual act. We're going to come back to this statement, so keep this in mind. It continues. He must first busy himself with the parts of the body above the navel, since that is all she can bear. She will resist the lower parts of her body. Oh, if <laughs> she will resist if the lower parts of her body are touched. So it's encouraging foreplay and easing a woman into it. Smart advice. It talks about caressing her breasts and then offering her a kiss. And if she refuses the kiss, she must fall to, or he must fall to the ground. It says falling at her feet is the final argument, which always works with all women. This is a cultural thing for the times, obviously, but it still made me laugh. It says you should talk to her in a friendly manner, teasing her, gossiping like her girlfriends, trying to kiss her again. Then he touches the tip of her breasts. If she accepts him, he embraces her proceeding to the area around her navel, then going further. He starts biting and scratching her legs, and if she resists his advances, he threatens her. Okay, wait. So first it says, don't be too aggressive, because you'll fuck it up for her. Now it says, once you've gotten to really touch her, you gotta threaten her further. This was a little disappointing. It seems like more of a mental manipulation than some violent attack, but still. Then, after a night or two of this sort of cat and mouse thing, it says, when she is more relaxed, he touches her sex with his hand. He starts to let it wander over her thighs and pubis and between her legs, and everywhere he leaves a kiss, kissing her forehead, eyes, and elsewhere. She becomes more malleable, malleable, and he can undertake everything. 
Everything here, by the way, means he can touch her with his hands everywhere. They still, still aren't going to go all the way. There is much more to this dance. It talks about how the husband needs to remind her of fond memories and hold off his lust to gain her trust and show her that he loves her. The whole point of this ritual is to assure her that he's not going to hurt her, that he loves her and cares about her, and that she can trust him. I thought that was super cool. There's a rule that popped up in certain texts that may or may not have been real called a lord's right. It's pretty much exclusively a European thing, but it basically states that the lord of a particular land has the right to deflower any new bride on their wedding night instead of the husband getting to do it. This is drastically different from what the Kama Sutra offers up. The Kama Sutra is an old-ass book, but it talks a lot about how to please a woman and keep her happy. There are obviously a few hiccups, threatening her and all, but it's way better than I own this land, so I get to fuck you. If you want to read the rest of the sexy details, pick up a translated copy of the Kama Sutra. It's extremely interesting to read through. I'm really excited to dig into that book. I've got one more thing I want to discuss when it comes to getting to home base. But first, I'd like to thank everyone who listened into this episode and who patiently waited for me to start finally putting the show out. I'm so lucky to have so many friends and family members who have been so positive and supportive throughout this whole process. And I've already met a bunch of new, amazing, open-minded people. My goal is to keep putting these episodes out once a week, to eventually start creating bonus content, and to really make this a full-time job. I know it's a long way off, but I think it's more than possible and can really benefit society the more this kind of education gets out there. If you agree and you think that, you know, the more we know, the better, and just want to help or support the show, consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. And if you want to be super amazing and start unlocking behind-the-scenes videos, up-and-coming interviews, want to be mentioned at the end of episodes, head over to patreon.com slash getnaked, and you can donate or subscribe and help support the podcast in that way as well. And if we get enough Patreon subscribers, I can keep this podcast ad-free, literally forever, unless Pornhub wants to sponsor me, because I'll plug them like crazy. I love Pornhub. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at getnaked.alex, A-L-I-X, at gmail.com, and you can follow me on social media by searching Get Naked Alex as well. Links to everything mentioned will be in the description of today's episode. Now for the final interesting bit of information. Most of us have heard the, about the geisha. These were Japanese women who were heavily trained in the art of hosting and entertaining men of high social status. They were not prostitutes and very rarely even engaged in sexual activity with the men they entertained, by the way. They were more like actual companions than playthings. However, there was a ceremony called Mizuage that involves a sponsoring or auctioning of a virgin geisha's virginity. In fact, geishas in training are not considered fully-fledged geishas until the ceremony occurs. When the older geisha believes the younger trainee has come of age and is ready, they cut the top knot of her hair and host a large party to celebrate the transition. In a book titled Autobiography of a Geisha, the author describes her Mizuage initiation as more of a sexual exploitation in which she was auctioned off to multiple men, all of whom believe she had yet to be deflowered. There's so much more here than I really thought there would be. Virginity ended up being much more interesting than I could have hoped for. And there's probably a lot more that I missed. If you have any extra facts that you think people should hear about or want to correct me on something I may have gotten wrong, feel free to email me and let me know. I will call out my own bullshit if it turns out I fucked something up. I'm not ashamed. I'd like to read the emails and comments at the ends of episodes as a sort of update if needed, so don't be afraid to send in your thoughts. Thank you again for listening in. I really hope it was as good for you as it was for me. Next week, we're going to be taking on the history and science of orgasms. It's looking like quite an explosive topic. Should be a lot of fun. As for today, this cherry has officially been popped. Until next time, happy humping, everybody. Thank you.